morning, everybody. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Deuteronomy 22. Um, we're going to be going through. We're still in our series in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, we've talked through it the last several weeks. There'll be about, I don't know, I think four weeks left before uh, we're done. And then we will start the book of Luke. And uh, the title of our series is Yahweh is Giving You. Yahweh is Giving You. And we've talked about this numerous times, the idea that Yahweh, God, is a giver. He's, he's trying to give, but with every gift, there are typically stipulations that come with that gift. There are ways to use it, misuse it, those types of things. And so it, the entire, when you read through Deuteronomy, it's constantly Yahweh is giving you, Yahweh is giving you. It's not what you've earned. It's a gift that we have to respond to. Um, and that's the book of Deuteronomy. It also is the commands in Deuteronomy. When God lays out these commands, he's saying, look, these are my commands and statutes and ordinances. They're gifts. They're not burdens. They're gifts to you. Um, the problem is we look at them as these burdensome things when in reality they're not. They're a gift for us to know how to live our lives. And so we've been looking at that over the last several weeks, walking through it. If you remember, Deuteronomy is the last words of Moses before he climbs up a mountain and dies. Um, we just came back, our youth and Brian and I and, and Lorna from a mountaintop experience, youth camp. We were there all week. You can hear it in my voice. Um, my voice was worse than this on Friday and uh, yesterday. It's actually better than it was. And um, I, I always lose my voice about the third day. It's just gone. Um, and that's because I have a megaphone and a cowbell and I'm whistling and screaming. So anyway, um, if you picture that. So, um, and I was the red team this year and just happened to buy a red truck. So that was fun to put the flag on the back of my red truck and drive around. So, so youth camp was a blast. There were some great decisions made. People made decisions for Christ to follow him for the first time. People surrendered to ministry. There were students that want to live their life uh, and recommit their life to Christ. And so be in prayer about that this week for those students that are going back and they're back in their families, some of them from very broken situations uh, that they're walking into and um, are trying to figure out, you know, how do I pursue Christ in the midst of this and live my life and get to church when I don't have a license and those types of things that are, I think we take for granted sometimes. Um, and so be in prayer about that. But Moses is getting ready for his last mountaintop experience. He's been on the mountain twice. He's now getting ready to get the people to walk into the promised land. He's trying to get them to see these incredible promises, these incredible gifts that God's given. He's giving his last kind of messages, his last sermons, before he climbs up on a mountain and has died and God buries him and no one knows where he's buried to this day. And he's just trying to get everybody ready to believe that God is good, that he's a giver, that he wants what is best for them. And as they go into the promised land, he has a purpose for their life and he has a way of doing things that he wants them to do. And this morning, what we're going to look at as we kind of get to the last of the law, this is the last part of, God, of Moses giving kind of these random laws that we've looked at over the last few weeks, is, is the idea of a special people. Um, God is calling out a special people. He says, look, I, I want you to recognize how special it is that you've heard my voice, that you've heard my law, and you've responded to it, because it's so unusual. God's like, it's very unusual to find people that will do the hard things, that will listen to my law, that will obey me when it's hard. It's, it's very unusual. It takes a very special people. It takes a people that will die like Jesus did, a very special person who laid down his life because he believed that his humanity was a gift from God that was a sacrifice to be given, not a life to be taken. And so as a result, 
God is looking and he's saying, look, you are a, a special people. You have a privilege. You have a blessing. You have no idea that most of the world if, would long for, much of the world has rejected because they can't stand to hear what's true about God and live in it. And so we find ourselves, and last week I finished up with Matthew 5, 17, where Jesus is preaching and he says, don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. That's a modern idea today. We don't need the Old Testament. The Old Testament is done. We've got the new covenant. We just need to ignore all those things. And we're going to look at that a little bit deeper today. He said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. I came to show you how perfect it is, how wonderful it is, how good it is. And I came to show you that there are some things that don't have to be done anymore because I've completed it. That's the entire sacrificial system. Jesus was the final sacrifice, so we don't need to make any more sacrifices because it would be like doing something that, that, that doesn't work anymore, right? It'd be like trying to bring back technology that, that isn't applicable to our day. It'd be like trying to build a transistor or a tube radio from scratch. And you go, that doesn't, there's, there's not the machinery anymore to do that. There's not the technology, and it doesn't work as well. But yet, we try to do that. We try to go back and build on this foundation that it isn't, it's been fulfilled. It's done. There's something better now. And that's what Christ is saying. And he says, for I assume, or for I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of the letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. All things have not been accomplished yet. Some things have been accomplished. Jesus died, the sacrificial system's over, the Levitical temple is gone because the temple is now the human heart, the Holy Spirit resides in the heart of a believer. Like there are things that are gone, there are things that have been accomplished, but the end of the book, Revelation, we'll take a peek at today, says there are things that have not been accomplished yet. That we're still having to learn how to live in this broken world and that God's word is our guide. Every letter of it is a guide to us to worship him, to be grateful to him, to be in awe of him, and to look forward to the full accomplishment. So Jesus says, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these command and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Great. A great person, a special person. When you, when you love God's law, when it's something beautiful that you want to understand and obey, even if it costs you everything. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. And what he's saying is, is you've got a group of people that you're following that are telling you that there's like a hierarchy system. It doesn't exist. It's not about doing the law to get in good with God. It's recognizing that you are desperate for God to do the work in you. That you need to surrender to him and allow the Holy Spirit to come into you and give you the power that you do not have to live for him. And that's what the scribes and the Pharisees wouldn't teach. The scribes and Pharisees taught that the power was far off, that you couldn't be near God, that God was distant. They didn't want to be close and that they were really the only ones that could be close to God. And they were false teachers. They taught the law in a way that wasn't a blessing. They taught the law in a way that was a curse, that if you don't measure up, there's no way God could love you. There's no way God could be patient with you. That we can do things to you because we have the right to do them to you because this is what God's law says. Jesus is like, if that's your heart, you don't have God's heart. 
And we've looked at that. Love God, love people. That was Deuteronomy 6. It's the Shema that Jews still recite today. It's the greatest commandment that Jesus gave in Matthew 22. He said the greatest commandment is to love God and love people. And then he goes on and Jesus finished his first sermon. This is his first sermon he's ever preaching. And he says, be perfect, therefore, in verse 48, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We look at that and go, that's impossible to, to be perfect. Yeah, it's impossible without God. But with God doing it, he will make us perfect. And we aren't perfect yet. It hasn't fully been accomplished. But we're perfect and have a reserved spot in heaven. And we should be working towards knowing that, being confident in that, and saying, I want to be more like that, not like I am now. And that should be our heart attitude, recognizing that Jesus, what he did on the cross was to make us perfect. He was the perfect sacrifice to give us perfect access to a perfect God, that we have a perfect relationship with a heavenly father because of a perfect savior. And we say, man, that's perfect. I'm not yet, but I'm going to work towards it. Knowing that when I fall short, God still forgives and says, that's perfect. You're supposed to confess. You're supposed to ask forgiveness. You're supposed to see your sin. That's perfect. Now let's get going. And then Jesus ends with this in 728. He ends his sermon with, when Jesus had finished his sermon, the crowds were astonished. Astonished at his teaching. Because he was teaching them like one who had authority. Not like the scribes. See, the, the scribes would always find excuses for their own sin, and by doing that, they would then give excuses to the people for their sin. They wouldn't hold them to the high standard. They'd lower the standard to their standard, right? And, and they would almost pretend like, well, we really can't know. God is so complicated. He's so big. He's, he's so unclear. You just, you just got to do your best and hope for the best. That is not the God of Christianity. That's God of every other religion in the world. God of Christianity says you can't. It's impossible. You better cry out to me. You better learn my, my will after you've cried out and after I've given you that power. And so they looked and they said, man, Jesus teaches like he knows what he's talking about, like, like he's been there. Yes, he has. And he believes that he can accomplish it because he's been accomplishing it. And he says that he gives us the Holy Spirit to do the same. I'm gonna do something a little bit different this morning. We're gonna walk through Deuteronomy. We're not gonna read it all. I'm gonna hit the laws that we see in the next three chapters. Here they are. Chapter 22, 13 through 21, says this. It's punishment of a man that slanders his wife. In 22, 22, talks about adultery. In 22, 23 to 27, God talks about his people and rape. In 22, 28 through 29, he talks about fornication living together in sexual sin. In 22.30, God addresses incest, and Moses tells the people. In 23.1 through 8, Moses addresses entrance into the congregation, the fact that you have to be pure and holy to be in God's presence. In, in 9 through 11, and 20, or 9 through 14, he talks about the fact that uncleanliness is to be avoided. This is one of my favorite passages. I have a shovel at home with it burned into the handle. Because this is the passage that says, when you need to use the bathroom, you're supposed to get a spade and go outside the camp and dig a hole and go in it and then cover it back up because the Lord doesn't want to defile the camp. Right? We know that now. We have modern sewage systems. We like that. We like that we get to put it somewhere and it goes away outside the camp. But in those days, that was crazy. That's not how you went to the bathroom. You just threw it in the river. You just threw it out where it was. And people got sick. They got the plague. They died. He goes on and he says... 
fugitive slaves. God talked about slavery and what to do and how to give harbor. That if a slave was fleeing from another nation, you were not to re-enslave them or send them back, but to give them freedom and hope in a relationship with him. In 1718, talks about prostitution and religious giving. That you better be careful where your money comes from. And, the, and you shouldn't be giving it to God if it's come from illicit bad places like prostitution. In 19 through 20, it talks about loans and interest. Listen, I don't know about you, but I look at this list and I go, sounds a lot like my world. <laughs> when I look at this list, I look at all this and I'm like, this sounds like the place I live in. These sounds like the issues that, that we deal with today. They haven't changed much. We're dealing with debt and loans and interest. We're dealing with prostitution and rape and fornication. We're dealing with all of these things today. And God and Moses is reminding his people of these laws because they're getting ready to go into nations that do all these things. Because those nations have been taught to do what works, to do what benefits you. And it's survival of the fittest. The strongest win in the end. The strongest survive in the end. And so be strong. Follow your heart. Do what you think is right. Don't worry about God's commands. And God says, no, you need to believe what I'm telling you about these issues. And when you read them, they're hard. They're hard. To us. God, they're not. See, God doesn't, listen. God doesn't avoid hard conversations. He actually addresses them clearly. And that's why we don't like the Old Testament. Because it doesn't give us wiggle room. We like to read in the New Testament because we like to find the wiggle room. Jesus never gave wiggle room to people. He gave grace. He gave freedom. But he never gave wiggle room. He never, again, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I came so that you could know what real rape looks like, what real adultery looks like, what real fornication is. And it's just like what I told you. Remember, Jesus is called in the book of John, the word. John refers to Jesus at the beginning of his gospel. And he says, Jesus was the word and the word was God and the word was with God, which means Deuteronomy was written by who? Jesus, he's the word. He wrote it. He gave it to us. It was Jesus walking in the garden, talking to Adam and Eve, speaking with them. See, we want to separate this out and say we've got a New Testament and Jesus is this new God. He's this new version. He's not a new version. He's the same God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Same family, same rules, same mission, same special people God is trying to get to believe in him and live according to his ways. It hasn't changed. Look at the next list. The next list is this, vows. Not breaking your vows or your oath and taking vows. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no when he teaches the Sermon on the Mount. In 23, 24 through 25, talks about trespassing rules. What do you do when you're on someone's land? You find some grapes or some heads of grain. Are you allowed to eat some? Yes, but only what you can eat. You're not to put any in your pocket. You're not to steal. But if you're hungry, you can eat, and they can't judge you for that. Can't take any home. Just, just for you when you're walking through. See, that's a very gracious law. It goes on, and divorce and marriage. It talks about a newlywed man not going to war, but taking a year off to get his family established. 
Talks about security for a debt. Be careful what you take from people for security from a debt. It talks about not taking their millstones that are used to grind grain because then they can't feed themselves, which will cause them to go into more debt. Talks about other things not to take. If you take their cloak and they're cold, make sure you give it back to them so they can be warm. God's like, I'm concerned for people. People need to feel the pain of their debt. They need to feel the cost of the decision that they made, but be merciful. He goes on and he talks about kidnapping and what should be done. He talks about skin diseases. He talks about loans and the collection of loans. He talks about the treatment of employees. He talks about justice and punishment. He talks about charity. Is this not a familiar list again to us today? This could be a list that we, if you listed the problems in our culture today, it'd be like, yep, check, check, check. It hasn't changed. It just hasn't. We just like ignoring it. Finding a better way, being led by our emotions, not by the truth of God's word. Goes on, look at the next list. 25, one through three, talks about floggings for judicial systems or sentences. He says, you're gonna have to flog people. They don't listen. Proverbs says, if, if you spare the rod, you'll spoil the child. Listen, God disciplined his children all the way, his special people. He let them know how special they were, often by disciplining them. And they would look around, read the Psalms. David would sometimes get so frustrated because he would look around at the wicked and he would say, God, why do the wicked prosper and your special people, me included, suffer? And then David, when you read those Psalms, would come back around and say, oh yeah, because we're morons, I'm a moron, I sin, I deserve it and they're getting their ultimate payment later, and they don't realize it. And, and he even says, this is why Jesus was only flogged 39 times, because you were only supposed to flog people 40 times. So what did they do? Well, the Romans knew that. So when it was time to flog Jesus, it wasn't just flogging with a whip. Oh, no, 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 no. They used a cat of nine tails with metal or bone shards on the end because we can only get 39 hits in, but it doesn't say what kind of whip we can use. We can use something that rips the flesh off of him and exposes his spine. But we can't do that 40th one because then the Jews will be upset because their law says not to do 40. See, that's the way we are. I didn't do 40. I'm good. You ripped a man's flesh off. Well, but the Bible didn't say I couldn't. We're supposed to flog people for their sins. And Jesus, he, he, he went against the Pharisees, the high priest. He deserved it. 24.4 says the ox is not to be muzzled when it's feeding. Don't put a muzzle on it. You're just going to frustrate it. Let it eat the grain that falls. It'll encourage it to keep going because then it's like, wow, if I keep doing this, I might find some more grain. <laughs> Rules in a fight. Our next one is raising seed unto a brother. It's talking about how to preserve the family line. That's a weird law. Kent talked about it a few, uh, uh, a while back ago in Deuteronomy or in one of the passages we've talked about it. The fact that you've got to raise up a line and it's kind of what? Because you're a special people. Your brother is special. And your heart is to get rid of your brother and take his stuff instead of being sure his stuff is preserved for his children and grandchildren and on. Goes on, it says rules in a fight. God gives rules in fights, how, are, how we're supposed to fight. Unjust weights and measures. He says be careful. 
You're going you're to have a temptation that you're going to want to measure things differently and get a little bit more for yourself. He talks about the memory of Amalek is to be blotted out. It's a people group that were just wicked to God's special people. And he said they, their memory is to be gone. Do not remember them. Don't talk. They're gone. They are wicked. He talks about giving the first fruits of your crop, of your, your flock, of what you've been given, that God gets first rights and that you're to celebrate and rejoice. And then he talks about in 26, 12 through 15, he talks about the third year's tithes and what to do with those to help God's special people and to make people feel special. Listen, if we go back through this list of punishment for men that slander their wives, adultery, rape, fornication, incest, all the way, fugitive slaves, kidnap, this is just like a list for us today. This is no different. And the reason we're a mess is because we're preaching Jesus, Jesus, grace, grace, and ignoring all of this and wonder why we're in such a mess. Because Jesus is the one that gave us this law as a gift. It wasn't a burden. It's like, I really want you to know my heart, and I want you to know how wicked the world you live in is. And let me tell you, for people that work in the hospital and in the police profession, ask them about how wicked our world is. They see it every day. They see the wickedness. It drives some of them to suicide. It drives them to alcohol. It drives them to bad places. But for some, it drives them to the gospel because they don't know where else to find hope in what they see day in and day out in this world that they have to protect. And in our world today, many times the people don't even want them to protect them. They're spit on. They're ridiculed. They're not listened to. Are there wicked police officers and doctors? Sure there are. The majority are not. The majority do not go into that profession because they want to be wicked. Guys, I don't know how else to give this to you but to lay this out. And in Deuteronomy 26, 16, Moses wraps up this part of the teaching and, and he comes back down to a statement that he said and this statement he has said over and over and over again in Deuteronomy. He keeps repeating this statement and here it is. He says, the Lord your God is commanding you this day to follow these statutes and ordinances. You must be careful to follow them with all your heart, all your soul. Moses says, this is going to take everything you've got. You can't do this haphazardly. You can't do this if you don't have a focus on a heart for the God of the universe and a love for him and a passion for him and a compassion for people. There is no way you are going to do this if you're not concerned for your soul and concerned to go after God's heart. If you get lazy and you're not concerned for your soul and you're not concerned for God's heart, you're going to compromise. You are not going to follow these things. Today you've affirmed that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways. Keep his statutes, commands, and ordinances and obey him. See, when we commit our lives to Jesus Christ, one of the, again, the, the problems we have is that we don't understand and sometimes we don't preach that when we accept Christ, what we're accepting is we're accepting a master into our heart. Yes, we're, we're accepting forgiveness. We're accepting grace. It's a free gift given. But Jesus says when you receive that free gift, what comes with it is me inside you, talking to you, confronting you, 
dealing with you. And you can shove me down and try to push me out, but if I really know you, I'm going to keep going after your heart and your soul, and you're going to be at a war within yourself. Goes on and he says, and today the Lord has affirmed, look at this, that you are his special people, as he promised you that you're to keep all his commands. That he will elevate you to praise, fame, and glory above all the nations he has made. And that you will be a holy people to the Lord, your God, as he promised. A holy people. A holy people is a people that strives to be like God, because God is, in his essence, perfect and holy. That's why Jesus said, be perfect, or be perfect as the heavenly Father is perfect. It's the same thing Moses is saying here. That's exactly God's heart, is to perfect us. To perfect us in how we love people, which means like Jesus. When Jesus was perfect in loving people, what happened to him? He was crucified. Perfect in loving God, where you don't compromise. He never said it was right for him to be crucified. He never said this is a good idea, this is exactly what my father wants. This is what has to be done, this is what we all agreed to when we created humanity, but this is on you guys. My heavenly father is not, did not do this to me. Humanity did this, and I agreed to it when we created humanity with free choice. And he looks, and he says, look, he wants you to be a special people. Here's, here's my problem. You and I, me too, I don't like to be special. <laughs> well, you're special. When someone tells you that, you typically don't go, yay. You typically go, what do they think is wrong with me? Right? Well, they're our special child. <laughs> right? If you're talking to people. We have, we have three kids, and that's our special child. And people are like, oh, we know what that means. See, to be special, means, it means different. It's set apart. That you're not going to look like the others. It's, it's going to be different. And he doesn't, listen, God doesn't just say he wants to set apart special individuals. He says, I want to set apart a special family, a community, a group of people, a special group of people that live differently. That they, they don't live like the world and the nations they're going into live. They don't go to work and live in work the way that everybody else does work. They don't go into their home and do their home like everybody else does their home. They don't do their money. They don't do their crops. They don't, they don't do the way that they treat other people. From other, they do what I've said is the way to do it. They say, I'm so special that God has given me a book. He, he's given me a love letter. That's how special I am. He's written to me a special love letter. That's incredible. We go on in 1 Peter 2.9. This, this is what Peter says about this issue. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. You're not a person for his possession. You've been called into a people. And what we've taught people in our, in our Western individualism, that it's all about you. It's all about what you think God says. It's all about that. And it's not about the response and the decisions that you make and the ramifications that ripple out for generations from you because you told God his law wasn't good. You had a better way to do it or you reinterpreted it. He goes on and look what he says. So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. That's just what God said. 
I want to make you a special people. I want to set you up so you can declare praises. So you can talk about how great I am. So people look and say, that's incredible. I don't know how that happens. That's amazing. He goes, that's what, it's the same message. Deuteronomy to 1 Peter, same message. And then he goes, once you were not a people, exactly, once you were in Egypt, in slavery, but now you are God's people because he called you out. He delivered you. You didn't do anything to get delivered. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Dear friends, look at that. Peter says, dear friends, I urge you as strangers and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. This is the issue. All of those laws are fleshly desires. If I go back and reread those lists to you, all of them are fleshly desires. I want a little bit more for me. She's not enough. He's not enough. I can get this. I can get that. I have, that's what it is. And we're so busy pointing at everybody else's fleshly desires, Jesus says, uh-uh, look at the speck in your own eye before you start pointing out the plank in everyone else's. There used to be a band back in the 90s called Plank Eye. It was a heavy metal band, like, like thrash metal, you know, like blah, 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 blah. They were called Plank Eye. I have one of their albums if you ever want to listen. I can, you know, pass it off to you as a CD. You know, I'm like, it's amazing. These guys are called Plank Eye, and they're like, blah, blah, blah. you know, like, that's, that's pretty ironic. God says, look, he doesn't say don't help the guy out with the speck in his eye. If I'm at camp and some student comes up to me and is like, I can't see it. I was playing. I can't see out of my eye. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I can't help you. I have a plank in mind. Have a nice day and walk away. That's not what the verse means. The verse means you've got to be able to see clearly. And the only way you see clearly is to be in a community and to live by God's word. That's it. You're a people, not a person. And when you're not doing that, you're in trouble. You're going to get in trouble. It's going to be deadly. And he says, there is a war happening in all of us. All of us have a fleshly war. That there is a flesh that fights against the spirit at all times. Why? Because we live in a world that's painful. We live in a world that's emotionally a mess, physically a mess. And we're trying everything we can to get out of it. And God says, I didn't ask you to get out of it. I asked you to live in it as strangers and temporary residents. It's only temporary pain. You'll get over it, and I'll make you perfect. And if you trust in me, my joy is greater than the pain. He goes on, he says, for it's God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. How do we know what's good? How does a special people know what's special and good? The law. Listen, you don't run to good naturally. You don't. You don't. You would be dead had your parents said, my child has been born perfect. I can just let them go and they will learn everything good in the world. There's not a single one of you that raised kids that way because your kid would be dead. They would have drank bleach from under the cabinet and be dead. It'd be over. And you would have looked at him and been like, well, I don't want to tell you that's not good. I know you're dying and puking blood, but you know, you, you make your own decisions. That's not how we do things in the world, yet when it comes to church and God, it's like that's what we expect. We're just going to figure it out. You aren't going to figure it out. You need help. I need help. I need God's word, and I need other believers. I need a wife. I need kids. I need people in my life who are following Christ that can, can help me see him. And he goes, 
The only way you're going to silence foolish people is by doing the right thing over and over and over and over and over and over until you die and it's over. Because foolish people don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to know what God's heart is. They've already made their decision what God's heart is for them. They have no desire to dig any deeper. He goes on and he says, as God's slaves live as free people. He says, you're a slave unto God. Your, your, your residence is in heaven. When you come to heaven, you're going to do everything your master says because he's good. But you live in a world where everyone's trying to enslave you. And you've got to tell them, I'm free from, from this slavery of this world. But I still submit to you. <laughs> Which we're going to look at in a moment. That we still submit to the rulers and authorities. Because that's what's good and right, God says. Because next, look what he says. But don't use your freedom as a way to conceal Evil. That's the modern church. The modern church uses the freedom of grace, the free gift of grace, and the sacrifice of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus as an excuse for their evil. They do. So do I sometimes. And I'm grateful that I have people who look at me and confront me when I do. I'm grateful for my children that look at me and say, Dad, that's, you shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have done that. You're right. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I'm grateful that they know to extend that grace because they know Christ and they know his ways and they know it's his authority, not my ultimate authority. They still submit to my authority, but that's the way it's supposed to work. And he says, don't use your freedom to, make it, to do evil, to conceal evil, to say that I can do this because I can, because I'm feeling it. No, he says. In Galatians 5.13, Paul writes this. Galatians was the book that caused the Reformation. The reason you're not Catholic is because of this book. Galatians was the book that Paul found, not Paul, Martin Luther found that Paul wrote. And when he read the book of Galatians and saw the grace of God, the book of Galatians was being hidden from God's people. Why? Because of what Peter just wrote. Because evil men were concealing the grace of God. For their evil, Martin Luther found it, read it, and then said, wait a minute, we're wrong. We can't teach, we have to teach the grace of God. He didn't go against the law. He didn't want to not be Catholic. He didn't want to break away from the Catholic church. He just started reading the Bible. He was transformed. He came to know Christ. And can I tell you, Martin Luther before that time did everything he could to feel saved. He obeyed every law he could. He would, he would starve himself. He would, he would almost beat himself. He would read himself to death almost. I mean, he was doing everything he could. And when he read Galatians, the veil came off and he was like, oh my goodness, that's the problem. I'm not doing it from a place of understanding the gift and the special person I am. I'm trying to earn this. And he goes, and we're telling everybody else, and we've been telling everybody else all the way through the Crusades, all those men and women that died, we've been telling them a lie. I have to stand against this. And when he posted his 95 Theses on the door of the church, they decided we got to kill this guy. So then he was left with, what do I do? I, I, I got to tell this message. I don't, I don't know what else to do. We've been lied to. Martin Luther didn't say, this is how I feel. He said, this is what the book says. Why aren't we doing it? 
For you were called to be free, brothers. This is exactly what Peter just said. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh to get what you want that feels good. But serve one another through love. How do we know how to serve somebody? Well, because we've got a list of stuff that tells us how to serve properly. We have a list of stuff that tells us what's loving. I told somebody yesterday, I told some of the kids at camp, I said, you know, I'm glad you're here at camp because it means that your, your parents were at least loving enough not to stone you to death. Because they have the right, biblically, to stone you and kill you, and they didn't. That's very kind of them. Thank them when you get home. They laughed. But there's some truth in that. God destroyed the entire world by flood and kept one family alive because he has the right to do that. Because we're that wicked without his grace. And we pretend like God doesn't have the right to ask us to, to suffer or sacrifice or give our lives or obey him when it's hard. He goes on and he says, for this entire law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you hate and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Well, how do we know if we're walking in the Spirit or if we're walking in the flesh? We have a book that helps us. He goes on and he says, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so you don't do what you want. You ever feel like, why am I, I don't want to do that. Exactly. God's like, that's normal. You, you're a special person that you have that fight. The world, they don't fight that. They just do what they want to do. That's it. This is what I want to do, I do it. Whatever happens, happens. We're a special people. We're special. We get to wrestle with it and fight with it. Isn't that special? He goes on and he says, but you are led by the Spirit. You're not under the law. He's like, here's the deal. You're above the law which means you don't look at the law as the means by which you're going to make things happen. You see, God is the one that makes things happen, so you start with him and you say, now God, what do you want me to do with your law? Not, I'm gonna do the law so I can get to God. It's, well, I've already have him. I already have her. I'm already in the family. I just wanna know what to do to be a good family member. I wanna know what, I, I've been adopted. I'm appreciative, but what do I do now? How do I, how do, I do this? I'm not under it anymore. I'm above it, looking through it on how to get it into, into other people's hearts. It's a different perspective. He goes on and he says this. Paul writes, he says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. Are they? They're not obvious in our day. They're not obvious anymore. We live in a culture that doesn't believe these are obvious. We live in a culture that celebrates these things now. And God says, if you're in the spirit, these will be obviously wrong to you. Obviously. And if they're not obviously wrong, you better check your soul. You better check your heart and where you stand before God. Because he says, these are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, Sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. Look at what he says. 
I tell you about these things in advance, as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I didn't write that. That's not Old Testament. That's New Testament. That's Paul. Now, is there forgiveness for all of those things? Absolutely. Are we going to struggle with probably a couple of those things that are our pet sins? Absolutely. There is a difference between struggling and practicing them to get what you want. See, when you practice something, you believe that there's an outcome you want. That's why you go to practice. I want to play in the game. If I don't show up for practice, coach isn't going to put me in. I'm not going to be able to shoot the shots. I'm not going to be available. So I have to show up for practice so that I can play. Paul's saying, look, if you're practicing these things and you're like, it's no big deal, it's, it's not a problem. For, if that's your heart, you may not be in the kingdom of God and you better check it. That's what the kids were told at camp this week. I love the preacher that was there, the camp pastor, Mike, church planner in St. Louis. Our cooperative money that we give through our missions help plant his church, which is awesome. You know, to, to see that he's there and we're a part of that in a small way is pretty cool. And Mike walked hard through this because the theme of the camp was restored, being restored. And there's no restoration if you don't see that you're restored. If you think you're fine, then you don't let people sand the rust off, fill it with Bondo, re-weld and repaint it because I think I'm fine. Don't touch me. I'm good. And that's what Paul's talking about. He said, watch out. And if you see people practicing these things over and over and they're not changing, are you ready? Just like Moses said, you should be concerned for their soul. You, you should be concerned for them and where they stand before God. And if you address these things in their life and they still do the opposite, you should fall on your face and cry out to God for their soul. We don't know if they're saved or not. So you have no idea if someone's a wounded sheep or if they're a wolf in sheep's clothing because the wolf had to make the sheep bloody to put it on. So you don't know if they're a wounded sheep that's just responding badly and running, running away or if they're actually a, a wolf ready to devour the rest of the sheep. I don't know that. I never do. I just have to keep doing the right thing over and over and over and over again and trusting God. That's the best I have and point people to his word, and point people to these things. And listen, this entire list, look at it again. This entire list we just read in Deuteronomy. All of these things were what we just read. It hasn't changed. This is the beauty, though. Look at what he goes on to say. Paul goes on to say this, and I love this. But the fruit. See, there's always the, the big buts in Scripture, just so you know. This is one of those big but, but God, but Jesus. Like, it looks like we just read that passage and you're like, oh, I'm panicked. Oh my gosh, that's me. I actually, I do have outbursts of it. I may not, but, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. I love that. God says you can do as much of this stuff as you want. There's no law. There's no law against how much love you can show. Sometimes it's loving to be disciplinarian. 
There's no, there's no law as to how much discipline you can get. <laughs> there's, there's no law. There, there's no, sometimes peace only comes through war in our, in our world. That's the truth. We would all be Nazis had we not gone to war. Had we just rolled over and just said, you know what, we can't really fight anybody because I know Hitler's massacring God's Old Testament special people, but who gives a rip? They deserve it. We're Christians. We're the new Israel. He doesn't love his people anymore. We got the new covenant. Who cares? We'd all be Nazis. Hitler was this close to developing the bomb before we were. The scientists that developed the bomb and then were the ones that, that led our nuclear and space program, guess where they were from? Germany. We didn't prosecute them so they would help us learn how to fly the rockets they had been developing. That's our history, folks. Had Hitler had a few more years with us sitting on the sidelines not doing anything for peace, it would have been bad. Sometimes peace requires a sword. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I'm going to divide. It goes on and it says, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Have you? Have you crucified the flesh or do you keep resurrecting the flesh? Like you kill it and it gets back up. Kill it and it gets back up. We're supposed to have resurrection in the spirit. Most of the time, me included, we're resurrecting the flesh. Dragging around a dead body. And it stinks. And it's awful. People smell it. And then we wonder why, why we don't know God. Why he doesn't feel close. Because God doesn't want to be around a dead, stinky body. It's not holy. It's unclean, which we just read about. God says crucify the flesh. And listen, we have fleshly desires. We're good at taking the Bible and turning it and twisting it around to, to make our rights our rights. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus gave his life for a bunch of people, only three people that weren't in support or at least silent with his death. Only three. A prostitute, his mom, and John. The apostle John. That's it. Three people. Everybody else either cheered it or just stood back to see what would happen. And we're kind of the same way. We don't want to be at the foot of the cross. We don't want to be on the cross. We just want to kind of check things out. and That's, that's really hard. It goes on, he says, since we live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit. Where did the Spirit lead Jesus when he was first coming on the scene to go into ministry? Into the wilderness into the wilderness. Wait, so you mean the Spirit might lead me into the wilderness? Into, yeah. Why? So Jesus could declare the praise of his Father in the face of his greatest enemy <laughs> and put him in his place. So you, you can't touch me. And I'm not letting you have what you got out of Adam. I'm the new man. See, that's supposed to be our heart. I'm a new man. I'm not letting you take me down that road. You can starve me. You can kick me. You can beat. I don't care. I'm, I'm in. And I'm going to give my life for these people, Satan, that you will not give your life to. They're not worthy of it. Still going to do it. Where else did the Spirit lead Jesus at the end of his life? To the Garden of Gethsemane. And ultimately to the cross. See, we don't like that message. We, we like the prosperity gospel message that if we follow Jesus, he leads us to big, nice stuff. And then we die in our sleep and float into heaven and the angels rejoice and yay. 
The majority of people throughout human history have not died that way. <laughs> Most people in human history have died horrible, awful deaths from plague and war. Do the math. It's not pretty. Because we live in a wicked, broken, horrible world. And God stands and says, I went through it for you. And he says, will you go through it with me? This week as I was talking to the youth, And teaching, one of the things, and I've used this illustration before, but one of the things I told him is I said, you know, you, you don't understand how God's grace, when you really understand it and get it, how it works. You see, if you're standing before a judge one day, and I've told you guys this, but this is a little bit of a caveat. If you're standing before a judge one day and you know you're guilty, you've broken the law, and he drops the gavel and declares you guilty, but then he steps from behind the bench and he comes around to you and he, he stands in front of you and and he looks at the bailiffs, you're in chains, and, and he looks at you and he says, here's the deal, son, you're guilty. You know you are, I know you are, and I'm a good judge, which is why you're sentenced. I'll make a deal with you. I'll take your place. Bailiffs, put the chains on me. Lead me away. I'll pay the price. The only thing you have to do, young man, is to admit how guilty you are. And here's the other thing. The next time someone comes into this courtroom, you're going to wear the robe and be behind the bench, and you better be ready to do the same for someone else who's willing to admit guilt, to give your life for them, to lay down your life. See, that's the gospel. That's messy. We, we like Jesus going, but we don't want to put on the robe and stand in the judgment seat on behalf of others, knowing that not only do we stand in the judgment seat to tell people what their sin is, but we have to be ready to die in their place. No, no, no. We want Jesus to set us free and go out the courtroom to go to our homes, to go to our things, and do our life. And God's like, I'm just asking you to do what I did. I'm just asking you to model what I've done. I'm asking you to give your life like I did. You didn't deserve it. See, that's the picture of the gospel. And just like I told the students, there's no other religion on the face of the planet that promotes grace and promotes that kind of God. Not a one. So either Christianity is absolutely true or we're the biggest idiot morons on the face of the planet and you should walk out of here and never believe Christ again. And never, ever come back to him. Because either this is real or we are to be pitied, Paul says. Because we believe the biggest lie and the biggest cost to our lives of any religion on the planet. And it's a joke if it's not true. He goes on and he says, we must not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Listen, that pretty much sums up social media in that last verse to a T. Social media is all about provoking and envy. All of it. It is. It's about provoking an argument, getting in a fight, poking at people, poke the bear, and then it's about showing your vacation pics and how wonderful it is. No, you didn't see the part where someone almost drowned in the water. You didn't see the part where you're fighting with your spouse or fighting with your grandpa. Or no, you didn't see all the family battle in the car on the way down and the syrup that got poured on your daughter's lap. No, not that. It's the picture of all of you dressed up on the beach. Look how beautiful we are. Why? Because we don't want to show how the Spirit really leads 
that he leads us to some dark places sometimes, some hard places to love people that are hard to love. No, no, no. We want to show conceit, provoking, and envy. Be very careful where your heart is. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. In other words, the special people. Everything is gone. Now it's time for the ultimate special people. And the sea no longer existed. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. It's always amazing to me how God's favorite example in Scripture of his relationship with his people is, is, a, is a bride and a husband and them laying down their lives, fighting together. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people, his special people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's the restoration of Genesis. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. That means we have tears. Guess what? You're gonna tear a lot in life. That's why Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. You don't get comforted if you don't mourn in this life. Death will no longer exist. Why? Because death's everywhere in this world. Grief. We grieve a lot. There'll be no grief. Crying. You're going to cry in this life. Not there. Pain. There's a lot of pain in this life. There won't be pain there. We'll exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. He said, right, because these words are faithful and true. He said to me, it's done. In other words, finally, Jesus said, remember, it hasn't been accomplished yet. Not one letter from the law is gonna pass away until it's fully completed. This is the full completion. God was gracious enough to give us a picture when he didn't have to. He's given, up, given us enough to follow him without giving us the end of the book. But he gives us the last chapter for our benefit. And he says, I'm the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give water as a gift. It's a gift. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. I give it as a gift because I know you're thirsty. From the spring of life, the victor will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But look, the cowards, the unbelievers, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their share will be in the lake of fire that burns and sulfur, or that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's a hard teaching. He says, look, there's gonna be a great new earth. We love that part. We don't like the part that we've seen now repeated in Deuteronomy, in Galatians, in 1 Peter, and now Revelation. This part that says, look, you can be confident that God will bring you through by trusting him and surrendering to him and giving your life and trusting in his grace, not your effort. But there are those that do all the list in Deuteronomy, ignore it, that are gonna suffer greatly. As we wrap up, Ephesians, our last verse says this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Here's the problem. We don't believe our trespasses and sins kill us because we do them and we get to stay alive. Well, I'm not dead. That's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. They ate the fruit and they didn't die. So then they tried to hide. They didn't go to God. They didn't confess to God. They didn't like say, God, I'm sorry. Please forgive us. Oh, no, no, no. They tried to hide from God. That's what we've been doing ever since. Same story. 
He says, look, you were dead in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. He calls them disobedient. They don't obey what God says. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. Paul's like, I was one of them. I was in with them. So was all the guys that were following me. Carrying out the inclinations, there it is again, of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Look at this, here it is. But God, again, every time God tells the truth, he tells us how the world is, how it should be. He tells us his law. He says, you're my special people. I'm giving you this like I've given it to no other. And then we look at it and go, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble. And then he goes, but me, <laughs> but, but me, I got, I got this. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens. This was the verse that was shared with the students this week. And Mike said, you have a seat next to the Son of God in heaven. There's a seat reserved for you. Why aren't you acting like it? Why don't people know that? Man, I, this is my seat. I don't sit around here. I'm going to sit there. Man, there's some, I'm striving for that seat. I can't wait to be with him. For you are saved. Oh, then it goes on. He says, so that in the coming ages, this is what Moses said. So in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift, not from works so that no one can boast. That's the envy, conceit, and boasting we just read about. He says, for you are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works. How do we know what a good work is? It's here. And then he goes on and he says, he goes, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in him. He said, God has been preparing opportunities for you to walk in goodness even when everyone else is going to give you bad. These are opportunities for you. See, here's one of our problems. See, I like this book. I love this book. It's a wonderful book. It's a great book. But what I tend to do sometimes when I read it is I tend to just... Yeah, that's, that's, that's really, that doesn't really, doesn't really apply to me. That's not really, well, that's, that's kind of hard. I don't think God want me. We rip the pages and we rip the heart of God out. A heart that he's given us. Not because he's mean, but because he's loving. And he looks and he says, when you rip that out, that's me. My word is me. When you just say no, no, it's just you're ripping it apart. This is a gift. And he looks at us and he says, it's, it's a gift to you. Are there hard things to understand? Are there things that we're like, man, I, I don't get? Yes. And that's why there's faith. That's why we're saved by faith, not by works, our own ability to understand. It's like, God, I don't understand that. I, I don't, but I trust you. I'll do it. I don't feel it, but I'll do it because I trust you. Instead, we just rip it out, 
but out, but out, till we just have a book that has the things we like in it. We've made the God we like. It fits what, what would be the best life for us. It's brutal to the God who is when he so lovingly gave us a special people. It's a relationship for us to understand this through the power and the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful thing. That's why Moses was so passionate in Deuteronomy, to lay this out for us. One of the things I would like for you to consider and pray about is what this means for you. There are good works that God has for you to do. The first work is submitting and surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. It's the first act that we have, is to, to say, not my will, but your will be done. It's what Jesus prayed in the garden. He said, I, I, I'm done. I, I, I'm on. I, I believe in you. You are who you say you are. By faith, I believe your grace will forgive. I can't earn it. I believe you'll give me the power to live righteously with the help of a people, a special people. For some of us, we've been Christians a long time and we need to start picking up these pages and putting them back in our Bible. Start dealing with what God really says and believe that he loves us and that those words that we ripped out are loving. And when we've disobeyed and we just say, God, I'm sorry, help me understand this, help me to know that I have grace and forgiveness. I can't earn it back. I can just surrender to you. Can I just tell you, that's God's heart for his people, his special people. He wants you to be a part of being his special people so that we can then go declare his praises to other people so that they might be his special people. It's a beautiful plan. One of the things I would have you consider is at the end of that verse, it says, for we are his creation, created to do works which God prepared ahead of time that we should walk in them. One of our greatest needs of our church and always has been and is even greater than it ever has been right now, is our children's ministry. We need people that are willing to just love kids. To watch kids, to teach kids a simple lesson from the Bible. And it is the hardest thing to get people to do because kids are awful. I spent a whole week with them, okay? They, they, they're sinners. I don't know if you know this. They're sinners just like you. Only they're little sinners who don't know how to cover up their sin as well. So it's just bold in your face and drives you nuts, right? But God laid down his life for us. Jesus said, don't suffer, don't keep the children from coming to me. And it's one of the greatest needs in our church, one of the greatest works that we could have for people to do. And yet, so often it's, I can't commit. Commit one Sunday. To show up and just love some kids for an hour, hour and a half. You have no idea the impact that you have on people's lives. This week I was at camp and I had a youth pastor walk up to me and there was a girl in my group I was struggling to connect with. I felt like she wasn't listening. I felt like she was off in left field and group time. I couldn't draw her in. I'd do everything I could and it just seemed like she was like, and I'm like, she's getting nothing out of this. Youth pastor comes up to me in the second evening service that we had, comes up to me and he says, I don't know what you're doing, but there's something going on in her life. She's a different person. Like she's engaged in a way I've never seen. I thought, I feel bad for you. <laughs> like, like, does she just sleep at youth group? Like, does she just come and lay down? Like, I, I'm like, holy. 
He's like, no, you don't understand. She's engaged in our church group time. She's talking and like, I, she's talked about what you've taught and like, I, I don't know what you're doing, just keep doing it. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing either. So I guess I'll just keep doing what I don't know what I'm doing. Listen, you have no idea the impact you can have just by serving a few days or a week or a few moments in the life of someone. You have no idea. If you're interested in serving and saying, I'll, 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 I'll do it, I'll, I'll serve. I'll, maybe, maybe it's not being in kids, maybe it's something else. Listen, we want you to serve, not because we're desperate. It's because if you're not serving, then you're not a part of the family, because families serve. The kids don't get to just sit around. They got to do stuff, because they're a part of the family. That's the way it works. So I would ask you, do you need to trust Christ? Do you need to repent, come back to him? And you look at that list and things you're doing, and you say, God, I, I repent, and you need to talk to somebody about that. Or do you need to be his workmanship? Do you need to step up and say, I'm a special person and I have a special place and I can do special things for God because he's in me and I can do that in the lives of other people. I can let kids know how special they are to God because I know how special I am to him. That's all you gotta do. And let me tell you, kids are amazed by that. 